ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This podcast is sponsored by Global X ETFs. The energy landscape is changing before people's eyes and innovative companies are bringing green technologies like solar panels, smart appliances, and electric vehicles to our homes and driveways. The prospect of a federal infrastructure deal this year could offer significant room for these technologies to grow. Ready to invest in the transition to green energy? Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn how. Now it's time for ETF Prime where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week is Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. The big story in ETFs last week was the SEC messaging that perhaps, just perhaps, they might entertain allowing an ETF owning Bitcoin futures. Now, I'm not going to uh, get ahead of myself. If you heard my conversation with Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas last week, he said, we all may be in nursing homes before a Bitcoin ETF is approved. However, uh, there is now a glimmer of hope, not on a physical Bitcoin ETF, but a futures-based product. And so Laura and I will discuss this in detail. And I do want to say, uh, for those of you who may be getting a, a little tired of the Bitcoin ETF topic, I hear you. <laughs> I'd be the first to say I've probably overdone it on this. But I also want to say, uh, Laura and I are going to focus quite a bit on just ETFs owning futures contracts, period because there are some very important nuances and considerations to futures-based ETFs, regardless of what they own inside. And with commodities re-entering the portfolio discussion this year, I think this is actually pretty timely. Even if you're completely done on the Bitcoin ETF topic, I think you'll get some value out of this conversation. Always good to refresh on futures-based ETFs. Now, also joining me this week will be someone who... I think sort of flies under the radar in the ETF world. Herb Blank, Senior Quantitative Analyst at Value Engine and Head of Investment Product Consulting at Global Finesse. Now, Herb, listen to this. Herb established the first suite of ETFs to ever trade on the New York Stock Exchange. They were the Deutsche Bank Country Baskets. That was back in 1996. Herb was actually the first ETF portfolio manager. He also consulted with Barclays Global Investors on the launch of the iShares ETFs. Ever heard of them? Uh, he also consulted with the World Gold Council on the launch of the Spider Gold Trust, uh, GLD. I mean, we're talking foundational stuff in the ETF space. 
And I'm really excited for this. We're going to cover perhaps the hottest topic in ETFs this year, which is the rise of actively managed ETFs. I feel like there's just so much to the story uh, from why fund companies were slow to embrace active management and the ETF wrapper to begin with, to the non-transparent ETF structures, uh, custom baskets. Of course, I think you have to talk about the rise of ARK and, and Kathy Wood. There is a ton here, and this should be really interesting hearing the perspective of a true ETF pioneer. And then to close this week, really intrigued by this as well. I'll be joined by Robert Netsley, founder and CEO of Inspire Investing, who they offer what are called faith-based ETFs or biblically responsible ETFs. They're now quietly over a billion dollars in assets. And I would say, unlike some other areas of ESG investing, this has really been grassroots driven. I mean, they've definitely found a retail audience. And so we'll talk about that and we'll look at the investment process behind those ETFs. There's currently eight ETFs in all. As always, questions or comments, you know where to find me, out on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends, Laura Krigger. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, great having you back on the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Always great to be here, Nate. So I have to ask you, are you uh, fatigued on this Bitcoin ETF topic at all? Or, or are you like me? We're just going to continue beating this thing into the ground. <laughs> Well, it's, I don't know. I think it's kind of exciting because it feels like we have something uh, crunchy to talk about between all of the filings and the new mutual fund. There's sort of an energy brewing, you know, an excitement. Uh, something might might finally be happening, you know? Completely agree. Now, like I said, for those who are a bit fatigued, you and I are going to have a nice conversation around futures-based ETFs in general. But But let's start on the Bitcoin ETF topic. And I, I, I guess let me set the table here. So a couple of weeks ago, the SEC approved this Bitcoin futures mutual fund. It came from ProFunds. This was the first uh, publicly available U.S. mutual fund or ETF offering exposure to Bitcoin. Now, what that did was it got everyone thinking, well, wait, is the SEC starting to come around on this? Is a Bitcoin ETF next? And then last week, uh, as it turns out, we got these comments from SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, where he basically said that an ETF abiding by mutual fund rules and holding futures, that could be a path towards Bitcoin ETF approval. And let, let me read these comments. Um, he said, quote, given these important protections, I look forward to the staff's review of such filings, particularly if those are limited to the CME traded Bitcoin futures. Again, uh, referring to the protections offered by a mutual fund, and I think the fact that futures are regulated by the CFTC. So let's start there. What did you make of all this? Well, so my sense is that Gensler and company were okay with a Bitcoin futures mutual fund rather than a physically backed ETF uh, for two main reasons. So the first reason, for better or worse, as you pointed out, Bitcoin futures are an already regulated product, right? The CFTC regulates Bitcoin futures. There's exchange protections around trading futures contracts and so on and so forth. So 
There's been a lot of back and forth over the past couple of years about who specifically has the regulatory jurisdiction over Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. And the SEC, they've definitively stated that they consider Bitcoin a commodity and not a security. And if that's the case, then Bitcoin should fall under the jurisdiction of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission and not the Securities Exchange Commission, right? So so Bitcoin futures offer the mechanism to, to do that. Now, the other element here is that it was in a mutual fund structure versus an ETF. And I think that's important because um, of many reasons, but uh, mainly that mutual funds can close to new investments. And I think that's here, uh, the SEC finds that useful if for no other reason than to ensure that uh, position limits are being maintained. So many people don't realize that there's actually a limit in the futures market to how large a position any one trader, any one investor can take in any given uh, futures contract month. So I think it's like 25% of the available contracts in that month um, in any given future uh, futures line. So if the fund becomes super popular, then that means the managers would need to buy up more and more futures contracts to meet that influx of demand, and potentially they could run up against position limits. So a mutual fund can just close its fund to new investors should they get too close to that position limit. But an ETF cannot do this. We actually ran into this problem with oil ETFs in uh, 2020. Uh, there was a run on the popularity of front month oil funds like USO and USL, where people were, uh, you know, investors were trying to buy the dip in oil prices. And so the fund issuers of USO and USL they they had to suddenly change around their portfolio structure and buy contracts that were farther and farther out on the curve, contracts that weren't in their original investment objective, just so that they wouldn't run afoul of position limits. And so by the end of it, after you know six weeks or so, these ETFs were functionally active products. And so I think the SEC understands that a Bitcoin futures fund uh, would be as popular as uh, you know crude oil at at its height, and so they're trying to avoid a similar thing happening with a Bitcoin product. Laura, I think all of that makes perfect sense, and and I agree. I mean, I think the SEC is viewing this mutual fund as sort of a trial balloon. We'll see how that goes. If things operate smoothly, then perhaps the next step would be a futures-based ETF, and then they'll have to watch that closely because of some of the issues that you're speaking to, uh, you know, we saw with USO last year. One thing that I'm struggling with a little bit, and I, I don't know how deep you can speak to this, but I, I get that the futures uh, the, the CME Bitcoin futures are regulated by the CFTC, but I have a hard time understanding how if the SEC thinks that the underlying spot market can be manipulated, which has been one of their biggest concerns and in, in why they, they pointed to not approving a Bitcoin ETF, a physical Bitcoin ETF. The question I have is, wouldn't that impact the futures as well? Like, I feel like the spot market and the future mar futures market are tightly intertwined. That's a fantastic question. And so a couple of things. First of all, Bitcoin futures prices aren't based on the spot price of Bitcoin on any one given exchange, but rather they're an aggregate. They're an average across uh, the prices of several exchanges, uh, the five 
largest, uh, the five largest exchanges with the highest volume. And then that, um, those five prices are weighted across a range of timeframes uh, and, and averaged together. So what all of that means is that if manipulation is occurring in the Bitcoin market, then it would need to occur on all five of the largest, most liquid, most secure and protected exchanges at once. And it would need to happen for uh, an extended period of time, a sustained period of time without the exchanges shutting it down for that manipulation to make an impact, a measurable impact on Bitcoin prices, uh, excuse me, prices of the Bitcoin futures. That's not impossible, but it is a lot harder to pull off than just uh, manipulating the spot price on any one given exchange. And so I think that's that's probably another reason why the SEC prefers Bitcoin futures uh, versus physically backed ETFs. Now, the, 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 the interesting thing here, though, is that most of the Bitcoin ETF proposals on the table right now are based on this same reference rate that underpins Bitcoin futures. Like, they don't use futures contracts, but they're using the same um, pricing mechanism. So I think the other element here might be, that, or that's making the SEC uh, comfortable with futures, is that they're cash settled. Uh, you know, nobody is settling things in Bitcoin. You're settling in cash. So maybe that's also putting them at ease as well. Okay, so no surprise, immediately following all this, following Gensler's comments, we've now seen uh, three Bitcoin ETF filings that would hold futures, right? There's one from ProShares, another from Invesco. Just this morning, we got one from Banek. And again, all would hold Bitcoin futures. And then also things like uh, GBTC, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Canadian Bitcoin ETFs, which I, I, I may have to get into that in a minute, uh, but I, I think we're going to see a whole <laughs> slew of futures-based Bitcoin ETF filings. Uh, do you agree with that? And I guess anything else you would add here? I do agree. Uh, I'm a little, a little hesitant on it, and, and maybe we can get into this more later because I don't actually think that Bitcoin futures are that great an investment option <laughs> for investing in Bitcoin. Uh, you know, when you're in using futures, you're adding in a layer of complexity, you're changing the risk return profile uh, away from the spot, the underlying spot assets. So, you know, again, we can talk more about it later, but the reason, uh, you know, basically Bitcoin futures are going to exist within the context of the futures market. And that has its own playing field and some regulatory rules, its own patterns of returns. And, and that changes what you're getting. Okay, I'm going to take the bait here uh, just because I can't help myself. I just have to say it absolutely boggles my mind that the SEC is doing whatever it can to not offer the most optimal product to investors. I mean, you, you just take a step back. We now have GBTC. It's been out there for several years, but this thing can trade at premiums or discounts. We have a stock-like microstrategy, which is uh, effectively a Bitcoin ETF proxy. It's a company loaded up with debt to buy Bitcoin. We now have this futures-based Bitcoin mutual fund, which who wants mutual funds anymore? Right. And then we now potentially have futures based ETFs. And I do want to get into the, uh, you know, the complexities of, of futures based products. But there are uh, additional complexities here with rolling contracts and higher expenses and mm -hmm. such. And I, I honestly just don't get it. I feel like the SEC is doing whatever they can to offer suboptimal 
options to investors <laughs> when I think we all know a physical Bitcoin ETF would be better. It just it boggles my mind. But but I digress. And one, one other thing I mentioned, the three futures based Bitcoin ETF filings, there was already an existing one from Tucrium, uh, which I want to mention as well. But um, Laura, just because I could very easily get sidetracked here, let's talk futures based ETFs, whether it's owning sure. Bitcoin or gold or some other commodity. Um, as I was just alluding to, there are some complexities here. And I, you know, I think with concerns over inflation or even just investors playing in economic recovery, we have seen increasing flows into commodity uh, based ETFs, futures based ETFs, something like PDBC, the Invesco mm-hmm. Optimum Yield Diversified Commodity ETF, that comes to mind. But the, the commodity space as a whole is generating a lot more interest. So with the remaining time, I'm just going to hand this over to you. You can go wherever you want. Talk about some of the key factors to understand with futures-based products. Okay. I, I will promise not to fire hose too much at your, at your listeners. So I think the most important thing to understand when you're dealing with futures products, whether it is a commodities future uh, futures market, whether it's a Bitcoin futures market, whatever, it's that the return profile of keeping a consistent position in any futures contract it is not a one-to-one connection to whatever is going on in the spot market for that underlying asset, right? It's a combination of factors. It's a combination of the expected return of your underlying uh, commodity, the, the cost of rolling that contract from one month to the next, uh, and the return on the collateral you have at stake. And I think in the case of Bitcoin futures, um, it's going to be the roll yield, that that cost to roll, that uh, is going to especially prove to be problematic because Bitcoin futures contracts, um, like other futures contracts like oil, um, they exist in a, this perpetual state of contango. And contango is a situation where it costs more to buy the futures contracts that are farther out on the curve than it does to buy the ones with nearer term expirations. Um, basically, it's a baked in expectation that prices are going to be going up for the commodity in the future. And so when you're rolling your current position, uh, your current futures position into a new one, as you would be doing if you were an ETF, then uh, contango is not a thing that you want to have because It means you are constantly in the position of selling low and buying high um, when you're rolling your futures contracts. Just, you know, look at what happened in the oil markets, right? In the front month month futures crude oil ETFs uh, were hit pretty hard when uh, oil, you know, shifts into, when the market shifts into contango. So the pro funds, mutual fund, the, uh, I haven't looked at the VanEck filing, but I know that the Invesco and the ProShares Bitcoin futures ETFs uh, filings, they would all hold front month futures for Bitcoin. And so that means that the funds are going to have to pay a premium to roll their contracts every month. And that cost is going to come right out of the fund's return. And I don't know, do you, I have a hot take here about the SEC. I don't know. It's it's kind of spicy, Nate. I, I want I, it. You know I want it. 100%. <laughs> spicy takes right. only on this podcast. <laughs> All right, good. So uh, the idea, I think, of a Bitcoin futures ETF sounds really good on paper. Um, It sounds like something we already have. It sounds like a commodities futures ETF, something we already understand. But by insisting that a Bitcoin fund use futures rather than physical Bitcoin, I'm 
I think maybe the SEC is setting up the whole concept of a Bitcoin ETF for failure, right? In, in six months, they can point to the crummy returns, the position limit problems, this uh, persistent contango biting into, into the roll cost, all of these structural problems that exist in the futures market that have nothing to do with the actual investment case of Bitcoin. And they can look and say, oh, look, clearly this is bad for investors and there's no way we're going to approve a physical product, right? They can use this as an excuse to dodge the question of a physical product. Now, I don't think that's going to solve anything. I think there's um, a clear desire and a, a pretty solid investment case uh, for something that would be that it would allow investors to access Bitcoin in a secure and convenient and protected manner. Um, and smarter people than me have made that investment case ad infinitum, right? Or ad nauseum. But I, I think what we need is an ETF that looks different than what's on the market, uh, right? Not not just a commodities futures clone, uh, not just a grantor trust, but something that um, maybe looks like one of the proposed ETFs that are out there. Uh, maybe not. Who knows? But a futures fund, it's more of a dodge than a real solution. To Let this. me just jump in there. That is a spicy take. And as, <laughs> as you were talking about that, you know, I'll add something else to maybe this little conspiracy theory, which is if we think back <laughs> to what you were alluding to uh, before with United States oil fund USO last year, where it perhaps got too big, right? And it was bumping up against these position limits for the, CF, uh, the CFTC has. Well, think about the demand for a Bitcoin futures ETF. I think regardless of whether it's a suboptimal product, we know investors are going to pile into that. And if all of a sudden that starts causing some disruptions in the in the underlying market or the thing just becomes a mess like USO, to your point, the SEC can point to that and go, see, this doesn't work. Bitcoin and ETF, yeah, we, you know, we don't want it. Uh, so so I like that. that. Uh, that's an interesting take. Well, one other thing I'll say just on Contango, I always like to, to use this as just a basic example for people because it, it can be hard to follow and understand if you're not familiar with futures. The bottom line is, is you could have the spot prices of a particular commodity literally stay flat, so not move. And if you're in a futures-based ETF, you can still lose money because of that roll every month that negative role. I just think that's a really simple way to explain it. Um, Laura, just a, uh, a a minute or two left. I mean, anything else you would point to with futures-based ETFs? I mean, do, expenses, taxes, anything else that you think is important to highlight here? Well, I think it's important to um, keep in mind that futures uh, products are often more complicated than a physical product. Uh, you know, with a physical product, um, there's... Uh, you know, you're not having to deal with the active or the the hands-on, I should say, not necessarily active, but the hands-on management of rolling contracts from month to month or, you know, picking across the curve. So sometimes, um, you know, commodities products that are futures-based can have a higher uh, long-term cost of ownership. So just be careful, read your prospectuses carefully, make sure you understand what you're investing in and make sure you understand the total cost of what you're investing in as well. Yeah. And I'll just add on the tax side, which I mentioned, be careful. Yeah. Some of these generate a K-1, which isn't the end of the world, but can be a little bit of a headache when you go to uh, to do your taxes. So something else to be aware of, make sure you understand the taxation and, and the structure of these futures-based products. But Laura, we'll have to leave it there. Nobody covers this stuff better than you do. Always appreciate the time. Thank you. It's always a pleasure coming on. Thank you for having me. That was Laura Krigger, Managing Editor of ETF Trends. 
With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. All right, my next guest is Herb Blank, Senior Quantitative Analyst at Value Engine and Head of Investment Product Consulting at Global Finesse. Though some of you may not know, Herb has been a quiet force behind the entire ETF industry. He actually established the first family of ETFs to ever trade on the New York Stock Exchange, the Deutsche Bahn Country Basket Index Funds. He was the first ETF portfolio manager on those. He also consulted with Barclays Global on the launch of the iShares ETFs. Of course, iShares is now the largest ETF issuer in the world. He consulted with the World Gold Council on the launch of GLD, the Spider Gold Trust, one of the most popular ETFs in the world. Uh, he's developed indexes for Dow Jones Global. You're really talking about someone who has been integral to the foundation of ETFs. And he's now joining me via phone from Orlando, Florida. Herb, great to finally connect. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Nate. I'm so glad to be here. Okay, so there is certainly a lot we could cover this week, but you and I chatted briefly and decided to talk actively managed ETFs, one of the biggest stories this year. And I, I thought to start, so literally 20 years ago, you had an article in the Journal of Indexing titled, ETFs Can Benefit Active Managers. This was January 2001. And I saw you recently wrote a piece explaining how from 1993 to 2019, only about three dozen active equity ETFs were launched in the US. So let's start there. Why were active managers so slow to embrace the ETF structure? It was viewed as a vehicle only for indexes. And they had a number of reasons they thought so it didn't even come up very much until the iShares launched in the late 2000s, uh, the advisor shares launched in the late 2000s. But for the most part, they felt um, they would have to reveal their whole portfolio and they would lose some of their secret sauce. People would be able to front run their trades, et cetera, et cetera. That the vehicle, uh, from a practical standpoint, distribution was an area they were concerned with because they didn't think that uh, there was a way to pay the salespeople. And without that, because the axiom was uh, mutual funds are sold, not bought, and ETFs were bought, not sold. Okay, so if we look since 2019, over about the past 18 months, active ETF launches have absolutely skyrocketed. So as a matter of fact, I saw on Bloomberg over the weekend, 
So far this year, there have been 156 active ETFs launched versus only 77 passive ones, which I think if you go back 10, 15, 20 years, nobody would have ever believed that. So what has changed? Why, why are active managers now coming into the ETF market in force? Well, this goes back to what I wrote in 2001 and is even more true today with the improvements in technology and recent SEC regulations uh, easing up, is that it is much more efficient to manage a mutual fund using the ETF structure than the traditional structure. Uh, people are already aware for years of the tax efficiencies in general, but those tax efficiencies are all are very much uh, exacerbated, or tax inefficiencies exacerbated, if you will, on the traditional structure, because you are managing to daily cash flows. And when you are managing to daily cash flows, you need to liquidate positions, and then you have to make decisions, which sometimes are made with liquidating your freshest ideas because they have the least embedded capital gains and keeping your stalest ideas because they have the most embedded capital gains. So not only are you not uh, uh, as efficient in the trades you make and are you losing money because you're making trades on the market, but you also have to have cash drag to, to have cash on hand to pay for these daily redemptions, and you're not always making your best investment decisions because you're making pragmatic based on the needs of your investors. I mentioned the new active ETF launches coming to market. I want to point out that it's not just that fund companies are launching these out into the void. Investors are paying attention. There was a stat last week from FactSet's Elizabeth Kashner um, where, where she said nearly 17% of net U.S. ETF flows have gone into active ETFs uh, this year, even though that segment only comprises about 3% of total industry assets. So you can see the, the tailwind there. Um, Herb, you mentioned improvement in technology, uh, and, and certainly the ETF wrapper as a whole is an improvement in technology versus the mutual fund. But are, are you specifically referring to the non-transparent structure there? The, the availability of the non-transparent structure for those who have uh, portfolios they feel would be especially at risk because uh, uh, if they were reviewed, because they could be front, front run, especially on the, on the way out on the sales and have impact um, impact cost embedded into the ETF basket being resumed. Yeah, they, those uh, those funds may uh, run into trouble. If you have 50, 60, 70 only selected stocks that are there and you develop a reputation that people are following, you could be very vulnerable to trades. And now they have three structures uh one that's cash only, one that has decoy stocks, and one that has all the stocks but not the weights that you can help use to help disguise what you have there. And I do discuss some of the advantages and disadvantages. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about this, the non-transparent structure, because I've got to tell you, just about every active manager I've had on this podcast, I always ask them about this issue and the daily transparency of ETFs, and just about all of them say it's not a hindrance. Now, I distinctly remember uh, American Century's Ed Rosenberg. He, he disagreed with that notion. But I would say just about everyone else has said they're fine with daily disclosure. And I, I think of somebody like uh, Ark and Kathy Wood, right? I mean, I mean they're posting daily trade notifications. Their, their research analysts are out there. Kathy Wood's out there tweeting about holdings. And it doesn't seem to be hurting them in terms of performance overall. Um, so can you talk more? I mean, how important is this non-transparent structure? Well, Feb 15 to 17, there were three days where uh, RK was uh, unloading positions 
And before the, the, the basket trade took place to get rid of those positions, the, uh, uh, pr- the prices uh, of these three stocks fell more than 20 percent. And, it w- w- you know, it was out of line with even what the sector was doing in the market. And the sector was down about three and a half percent, but not 20 percent. <laughs> so you feel like if those holdings had been cloaked, uh, there wouldn't have been quite as much downside selling pressure? Yeah, I do feel that um, I also work with uh, DTCC on some things, and we could see that a lot of those trades were coming from hedge funds. If that's yeah, the, so. yeah so what's interesting here, I mean, if that's the case, from, from my perspective, there's been a pretty lukewarm response to non-transparent ETFs overall. The, the assets just aren't there at this point in time. Why do you think that is? Why, why haven't investors flocked to that structure? It's... First of all, the ones that are using it are very new. The SEC's regulations are very new. And from an investor's standpoint, um, it's, it only helps or hurt if they really believe it's helping or hurting the ma- managers. Most investors don't care about it one way or the other. If a good manager comes out and is using that structure and gets a following, then it'll plummet. I mean, the whole thing now, when you're having actively managed ETFs, it's go- it's it's more reliance on the management team. For a while, I was thinking advisor shares should call themselves manager shares, or you should have a manager shares out there, because this gives a chance for a star manager to attract a following of, of ETFs, and I think you're going to see that, that happen as well. But, I mean, it's all there on performance, and as we all know, performance is transitory. Bill Miller uh, beat the S&P 500 for 15 years, but in the next three years, he not only didn't beat it, but gave back all the gains over the 15 years. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I saw a, uh, a tweet from Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas last week where he said that active non-transparent ETFs have taken in only $600 million year-to-date, which is just 0.1% of the total flows into ETFs despite being issued by big brands with deep pockets. He, he mentioned, you know, Fidelity and T. Rowe Price, American Century. And what Eric stated, which I agree with this, he said the problem is that they're neither cheap nor shiny, that they're, they're kind of caught in the middle here and that they're not going to compete with the, the cheap beta from Vanguard and iShares and, and State Street. And perhaps they're not shiny enough in terms of, uh, you know, generating outperformance to 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 gain a crowd. And I, I think there may be something to that. And I guess on that note, I, I wanted to ask you going back to uh, Ark and Kathy Wood, in my opinion, they've been a godsend to active management, right? Because they're showing alpha exists, significant alpha at times. But on the other hand, for whatever reason, they've also generated a ton of controversy or debate. You know, I'm not sure if it's other active managers who are jealous of Kathy's success, or there's some other stuff going on here. But do you have any thoughts on, on ARC and, and Kathy Wood and, and perhaps whether or not they have been good for active management? I've got to tell you, I was there the uh, week she became effective at a meeting at the uh, NASDAQ. And I, uh, all of the uh, na- uh, you know professionals in the room, and some of them I won't name their names because they're well-known experts in the industry, and uh, they basically asked her some, you know, why do you think you're doing this? Active, it doesn't work in, in an ETF wrapper, da-da-da. Uh, you don't have any distribution following. How could you possibly hope to succeed, da-da-da? And then even behind her back, they were, they, they, they were laughing more. Uh, this woman doesn't even know what she's doing, da-da-da. Well, guess what happened? Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So, and you know what happens when you have naysayers and somebody proves them wrong? 
then they, you know, latch on and they still look for a way to be right, you know, at the end of the day, right? So they still, they're still out there heckling. So, yeah, is there jealousy and is there chauvinism involved here? Yeah, it is. <laughs> there is some. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, look, no active style, no passive style is going to work in all environments, right? Uh, you, you know, I'm a... a more than anything, uh, Nate, I'm a, a quant. I'm a 40-year quantitative analyst, quantitative uh, product builder. You know what the, the real definition of a quant is? Somebody who can predict the past with ever greater precision. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. As you look at the future prospects of active ETFs, one of the main concerns that I've seen out there as it pertains to the ETF wrapper, and, th and this has actually come up with uh, ARC, trafficking in smaller cap stocks. Of course, you, exactly. you, you can't close an ETF like you can close a mutual fund. And as the space grows and we have more managers get involved, and to, to Eric Balchunas's point, I think if they're going to have success, they need to be doing something different than, the, than an underlying benchmark index. So could, could that create some issues where there are capacity concerns, and then could that be a hindrance for the longer-term prospects of active ETFs? I always thought capacity concerns as a class were overdone, and uh, especially with the most efficient markets in the world and, you know, the companies that are doing well, you know, growing by definition. So, I, you know, that whole uh, it's time to close because I have small cap stocks and I can't take more than this in capacity – I'm not sure I've ever bought that, to be honest with you. That being said, there are always ways out if, if it's absolutely crucial, including, as you know, closing the ETF. <laughs> I mean, completely just abandoning it and starting new products. <laughs> but uh, I, I don't anticipate that. I don't anticipate it as a problem, you know, at all. I think it's more of a uh, projected problem than a real problem. I think when managers have closed funds and started new ones, it's been more of a marketing issue than it has been an actual management issue. Herb, few understand the ETF structure and inner workings as well as you do. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but one of the things that I've heard from several ETF issuers as to why they're now getting involved in active ETFs, and, and DFA would be the first to come to mind here, is the ETF yeah. rule that was passed by the SEC in 2019, and specifically custom baskets. Do you want to explain why that was so important to, to active ETFs and why that's getting some managers off the sidelines now into the ETF wrapper? Oh, it was huge. Before that, only managers like D Davis Funds, who have very little turnover a year, weren't worried about uh, uh, the structure because the, the there, at that point, there were rules that were even prohibiting uh, trade, you know, using the custom baskets to make trades for the fund. And, you know, there was no, never a reason for that in the early days you could do it, with, and many of the index funds did. So, um, uh, at any rate, so as you say, Nate, the, the rule that went into effect allows you to have as many custom baskets on, you know, the, the uh, create and creation or buy side and the, or the redemption and sell side as you need in order to make your trade. So you have the, the stocks you uh, don't want in the exit basket and the stocks you do want in the uh, entry basket. And that's how the trades are made. And the whole point is to avoid making trades in the exchange that would uh, incur potential capital gains. Okay, so uh, just a few minutes left here in terms of the overall longer-term growth prospects for active ETFs. And, and you alluded to this a bit earlier, but I, I just want to be clear. Do you think this ultimately comes down 
to performance, like regardless of whether we're talking the transparent structure or non-transparent structure, we can talk custom baskets, tax efficiency, whatever. I is it really performance that needs to be front and center here in order for them to find success? Well, look at all the underperformance in the traditional structure. What I, uh, the whole article I have is leveling the playing field, and that's what this does. In other words, with 80% or 75 to 80% over any 10-year period underperforming the S&P, according to SPIVA studies, active management in the traditional structure had been doomed and needs to come into the ETF structure in order to have a chance on performance itself going there. Then after that, it's about performance. It's about how a manager's building the following, credibility, you know, that kind of thing. And, and those will compete better. But I think there's plenty of room for plenty of funds out there. I don't think there's room for the traditional structure going forward. The one exception, the one thing that's keeping the traditional structure going for now is the 401ks and that very few 401k plans are structured now are set to take ETFs or do fractional shares in ETFs. I see that being another change in the future and a change in technology that will make that advantage go away, at which point the traditional structure should go away. No, I think that's well said, and I completely agree with that. I'll just add that if you are an active manager and you utilize the ETF wrapper, theoretically you are going to have lower cost, you're going to have greater tax efficiency, and so in terms of generating after-tax outperformance, it's it's going to be easier to do so. You're going to have a lower exactly. you're going to have a lower hurdle, and so you know regardless of whether or not you're believer in active or believer in, in passive, that doesn't matter from an active manager's perspective. That bar does come down versus being in a traditional mutual fund. Um, her before I let you go, I'm going to be visiting uh, here shortly with Robert Netsley of Inspire Investing. And obviously, they offer uh, faith-based ETFs, and they have uh, several ESG screens on top of those as well. And I know ESG is a space that you have considerable experience in, 30-plus years of experience. I'm just curious, what's your take on the ESG ETF landscape right now? Because this is a space, I I've got to tell you, I've admittedly been a, a bit skeptical of. I'm, I'm just not sure it really moves the needle towards better societal outcomes just briefly here, what, what do you see is the, uh, the the future for ESG ETFs? Okay, well, first of all, I break e, uh, impact ETFs, which are uh, built towards a particular future uh, vision, if you will, uh, very different from ESG-aware ETFs, which I think a lot of the institutional benchmarks will switch to, which simply is going to be a best-of-class, eliminate the bottom quartile or bottom half of ESG performers in each of the industry groups kind, kind of thing. Uh, and that's a matter of risk control, and that's been shown by data over time. And that, that's where the major dollars have been going. But the, the number of investors interested in aligning their personal beliefs, and, and uh, Robert's, uh, the Inspire ETFs are all about uh, aligning your personal beliefs and your dollars and not wanting to spend your dollars more, more to the point on companies you don't believe in or that you think are horrendous. Uh, yeah, I think that that's all only going to increase. And people are, there are many people who are uncomfortable having, you know, owning companies from anything from ExxonMobil to Playboy that, uh, you know, are totally out of, out of sync with your own beliefs. And, you know, I think individuals care about that and have the freedom to do that more than a uh, type of plans or, uh, 
you know, institutions that have many constituencies. What about active ESG ETFs in particular? I, I, I like Linda Zhang has one, uh, Purview Investments, ECOZ, I, that I like a lot, to, to name uh, just one in that, that space. Oh, uh, and uh, Bill Davis uh, has uh, one with uh, Stance, uh, Stance Capital e- ETFs that are uh, uh, are good in that space. And, uh, you know, uh, basically, yes, I think uh, here's the problem. E- ESG data, something of which I'm expert on, is generally old by the time it hits the market. And you have to really know the companies and get behind the standardized ESG data to do anything but risk control. Well, Herb, we'll have to leave it there. Just a, a pleasure connecting this week. We'll have to have you back on to talk ESG in, in more detail. I can get pretty fired up on that topic, but really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining me. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Nate. That was Herb Blank, Senior Quantitative Analyst at Value Engine and Head of Investment Product Consulting at Global Finesse. Looking to invest in the forefront of change impacting our lives? Take a look at biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Why? Because biotechnology companies recently developed effective vaccines for COVID-19, and semiconductor firms created computer chips that are used across today's growing industries. Close to 20 years ago, NASDAQ developed two indexes to help investors track biotechnology and semiconductor companies. Learn more at Invesco.com IBBQ or Invesco.com SOXQ. IBBQ and SOXQ are NASDAQ listed. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-983-0903 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Robert Netsley, founder and CEO of Inspire Investing, who offers a lineup of faith-based or biblically responsible ETFs. They currently offer eight ETFs altogether, well over a billion dollars invested. And Robert is now on the line with me from Boise, Idaho. Robert, thank you for joining me this week. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so before we get into the ETFs, I would absolutely love to hear more about your background and how you came to start Inspire Investing. I I mean, you know, I look, you're a unique ETF issuer. How did you get down this path? In a very unique way, actually. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, it started by going to school to be a fourth grade teacher, dropped out of college. You know, I don't need to give you the whole background, but uh, somehow, uh, Lord led me into finance, and I was uh, working at Wells Fargo Private Client Service down in Carmel, California. And uh, happy as a clam down there. Uh, nice little office overlooking the beach and all that good stuff. Uh, and then I stumbled across this whole concept really just online one day. Some article was served to me by Google about biblically responsible investing, where you're looking at not just the uh, financial aspect of a portfolio, but the moral aspect of a portfolio. What are these companies doing that you own to turn a profit? And uh, it struck my curiosity, so I kind of looked in my own portfolio, my clients' portfolios, and honestly, the, the Holy Spirit just gripped my heart in this issue because here I was, um, the president of our local pro-life pregnancy center at the time, and I owned three stocks of companies that are manufacturing abortion drugs, and I realized, oh my gosh, this is a problem. And uh, then there's all kinds of other issues as I dug deeper in the portfolio, and within about two weeks, I was dead in the water. I couldn't do my job anymore, the clean conscience 
I uh, didn't know what I was going to do. So my wife and I, we started praying, asking the Lord for some direction. Didn't know if I could stay in the business. Never met anybody doing what we do now. Uh, long story short, two months later, took the incredibly frightening step uh, of faith um, and left the banks, left my income with my clients there with the team I'd been with previously. Started over from scratch, just me and a laptop, less than two months of savings in the bank, fully prepared, never to pay that mortgage ever again in my life, honestly. And uh, that was 10 years ago. Um, God's been gracious, and, uh, and here we are today. Before we get into the ETFs, can, can you just talk more about this problem you were attempting to solve? And, and what I'm thinking here is perhaps approach this from the standpoint of someone not currently uh, integrated into a faith-based community. Like, what, what's the mindset here? Why, why was this needed? Yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a verse in the Bible that says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And it's one of many passages that kind of describe this uh, idea in the Christian tradition that uh, all that we do is to be an act of worship to God all of our life, every aspect of life, right? We can't just have Sunday morning and then the rest of our life. It, it is all under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at things like our investments and how we use money, you know, Jesus talked about money more than most everything else, uh, if you read uh, through the Bible, and uh, it can have incredible uh, implications in our life. And so when we look at how we're aligning uh, the money God has entrusted to us and realize that we're investing in things like abortion drugs or pornography or human trafficking companies, and the list goes on and on and on, uh, that's just a, a clear uh, problem. Uh, it, there's no alignment there with your deeply held values. And for many, um, millions of people, uh, there's a, a serious issue of conscience there that we want to align our money, we want to earn our profits from sources that, um, you know, we deem as ethical and, and responsible as much as we can, and avoid making money from the things that are immoral. And, uh, you know, so that's that's the gist of it, uh, really seeking to be good stewards um, and making good impact as we can. I'm not going to uh, name this company. I, I think some people will know who I'm talking about. But there is a, a, a mutual fund company that I know markets to the faith-based community. And from, from my perspective, they tend to offer very expensive active mutual funds and insurance products. That they're pretty aggressive with their marketing tactics. I'm just curious, did, did companies like that play a factor at all in, in you getting involved here? Uh, indirectly, you know, we started out in the, in the wealth management space, you know, helping folks, their retirement accounts and such, uh, financial planning. But there was just there was no product, really, that was uh, diligently aligned with biblical values. So even a lot of the, um, you know, faith-based uh, financial services companies, um, probably like the one that you're mentioning, you know, they'll, they'll operate with a, a faith-based approach in, in some things. But then what we found was when you pop the hood on the investment portfolio, it's just the same as any other mutual fund, uh, more or less. And there wasn't really any screening going on. Um, or if they were uh, doing some screening and, and, and picking companies that would you know, align with uh, biblical values, oftentimes, like you mentioned, the, the fees were super high. The, the performance was you know, hit or miss at best. And there was only a few options. And so after years of struggling and, and uh, to really put together the best we could portfolios, and realizing that there were, I mean, at this point, there was hundreds of Christian financial advisors and, uh, and their clients that were finding out about what we were doing and, and coming to us for help, saying, hey, I've, you know, I've got the same convictions, I've got to do this. Where do I find low-cost, you know, fiduciary-friendly, biblically responsible investments to use? 
and there just wasn't any. So that's when we kind of looked around the boardroom table with blank stares, and I guess that means us, right? And that's when we started Inspire. Well, this is a perfect segue. So let's get into the ETF lineup. Uh, Right now, your most popular ETF is the Inspire 100 ETF, ticker Bible, B-I-B-L, which I have to ask you about those tickers later. They're they're fantastic. (laughs) Uh, But this owns 100 large cap stocks and is, uh, quote, managed according to biblically responsible standards, seeking to create meaningful impact in the world and help investors align their investments to support biblical values. Take us from there. What, what exactly does that mean, and how do you do it? Yeah, uh, you hit it on the head, so that's, that's what we're looking to do. Um, how we approach that is, and really in all of our funds, all of our investments, the bedrock is what we call our Inspire Impact Score methodology. So we've, we've built out this rules-based, objective methodology, data-driven approach uh, to identify uh, the most positive, inspiring, biblically-aligned companies in the world to invest in. There's uh, two pieces of that. Um, the score goes from negative 100 to positive 100. So there's first an exclusionary criterion uh, where we're kind of, you know, to put it simply, kicking out the bad actors. So excluding companies that have exposure to immoral issues like some of those I uh, mentioned earlier. Um, and those never make in the portfolio. They always have a score of less than zero. Uh, second stage is when we look at uh, the, uh, you know, the materiality categories of SASB for the environmental, social, and governance criterion, and we look at best-in-class relative to industry peer groups. And uh, the more uh, categories that a company is best-in-class in in things like supply chain and environmental friendliness and corporate governance and and such, uh, the higher the score they get, all the way up to 100. So in Inspire 100 uh, ETF, Bible, is uh, the 100 highest-scoring U.S. uh, US large-cap stocks um, in the market. And uh, we just market cap weight those in a low cost index and set it free on the world. So again, we're looking for those highest inspire impact scoring companies, those most in- inspiring positive businesses of blessing uh, is what we would term those and market cap weight them in a portfolio. And there you go. In terms of evaluating all of those underlying factors, are you doing all of that in house? I mean, that seems like a pretty heavy lift. It's a heavy lift. Um, we built um, a lot of technology uh, to do that. We, we definitely leverage uh, artificial intelligence and, and uh, as much technology as we can coming from the Silicon Valley uh, roots. Um, and we have uh, researchers and analysts in-house that uh, dig up data on like things like abortion philanthropy and legislation support, uh, things that aren't readily available from more traditional secular sources. Um, and then we do uh, bring in some you know normal ESG data uh, from some of the uh, you know, other vendors out there that's it's kind of more standard things like environmental issues. We don't need to recreate the wheel. But then we do interpret those through biblical uh, lenses and extrapolate that into our Inspire Impact score. And uh, right now you can go to inspireinsight.com. It's a free tool we put out for anybody to use uh, where you can type a ticker symbol in any time of the day or night and see all the good, bad, and ugly of what's going on down to the granular details, uh, stock, mutual fund, ETF, um, Virtually any publicly traded uh, instrument on a major exchange you can look up for free um, right now today. One thing I'm curious about, and and I'm certainly not intending to get into some uh, big debate here, but I know a lot of the existing ESG ETFs on the market, they make a point to score companies on uh, the diversity of their workforce and ensuring there are no discriminatory practices. Yet I, I look at your ETFs and you're excluding companies 
that support the LGBT lifestyle. I'm just curious, how do you reconcile something like that? Yeah, it's a great question and uh, something that we love to talk about, actually. So we, first of all, love our neighbors in the LGBT community, absolutely, as Jesus called us to, and we want the best for them and best for everybody else. We encourage all of our portfolio companies to um, provide safe, diverse, tolerant workforce um, environment, workplace environment, good benefits, you know, all the rest. Um, what we, where we draw the line is on LGBT activism. And so when a company makes a decision to get involved in politics, let's say, right, and push certain uh, legislation such as the Equality Act, uh, which has severe implications for religious freedoms and has, and frankly, there are many people in the LGBT community that are concerned about it as well, um, you know, as one example. You know, when a company decides to push an agenda like that that has nothing to do with their core business um, and we're an investor, that's not representing our, our views as a shareholder. And so we engage with those companies uh, to encourage them to reconsider. Uh, if they won't, then, you know, that is a violation uh, when they're, again, pushing for one side of an issue like that. In terms of uh, performance, so I looked yesterday, Bible has actually slightly outperformed the S&P 500 since its launch in 2017. But what's even more interesting to me, uh, this ETF hasn't had the exposure to the FANG stocks, which, of course, we all know has really driven the performance of the uh, the major market cap weighted indexes. H- how is that possible? What have been some of the performance drivers here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you read the headlines for the past five years, you would think it's impossible, right? Um, so, yeah, we do not own any of the FANG stocks. In fact, I don't think we own any of the top 20 companies in the S&P 500, uh, for that matter. And, and yes, Bible is slightly outperforming by, I think, about 10, 10 11 basis points, uh, the S&P since inception three years ago, a little over three years ago. Um, how that's happening is um, there's a lot of great companies out there that aren't just those, you know, those big, uh, big names in the news. And when we've looked at the attribution analysis, we've done some studies with Biola University and others, what we found is that um, one of the byproducts of our screening with the Inspire Impact Score methodology is driving us towards uh, a higher quality tilt in our portfolios. Um, you look at things like credit default swaps and other measures of quality and return on equity and whatnot, and it's, pro- it's producing a higher quality uh, factor in the portfolio. And ultimately, you know, if you ask the question, well, if I asked you this question, you know, uh, true or false, the best way to earn uh, above average investment returns is just to buy the exact same stocks as everybody else. I mean, you'd probably say false, right? I mean, you've got to find alpha by buying other things and not following the crowd. And so our screening methodology leads us to a different subset of companies that end up in the portfolio. Uh, so instead of just buying the same names as everybody else, uh, it's leading us to a different, um, different mix. And uh, the proof's in the pudding. It's, it's worked out uh, quite well for us. Okay, so if I look at your entire ETF lineup, you also offer a mid and small cap version of Bible, uh, the Inspire Small uh, Mid Cap Impact ETF ticker ISMD. There's an international version, ticker WWJD. There's a broader global version, the Inspire Global Hope ETF, ticker BLESS, B-L-E-S. You have a bond ETF, uh, the Inspire Corporate Bond Impact ETF, ticker IBD. And then you have three other ETFs. One is a uh, an actively managed tactical allocation ETF. It can rotate between stocks and and bonds and gold. And then the other two are also active. Uh, They're U.S. stock ETFs, which incorporate your same biblical and ESG screens. But then you also bring in technical analysis and evaluating company earnings and valuations and such. 
Can you just talk high level about what you're putting together with this entire ETF lineup? What's the overall idea? The Black Rock of Christian Investments. That's what we're putting together. There's, there are, uh, listen, in, in this country alone, there, uh, as of the last, the previous census, not, we haven't done the data for this most recent census, there was $21 trillion of stocks, bonds, mutual funds in retirement accounts, uh, oh, just retirement accounts, that are controlled by evangelicals, Protestants, and Catholics. $21 trillion. And that number's bigger today, I'm sure, uh, and then there's all the taxable money that it's hard to put a number on. Can you name me one major firm that's, that's looking to serve these clients? Right? There's, there's nobody in a big way looking to do this, and it has to happen. Um, ESG is taking the world by storm, as, uh, as you're well aware. Uh, institutions and, and everything else, it, it really is changing the landscape of uh, risk analysis. Um, but as you alluded to earlier, oftentimes these ESG funds are tilted um, kind of towards a more progressive liberal uh, viewpoint or interpretation of ESG, which is fine. Now, there's people that you know want to invest that way. But there are so many other uh, people of faith and people with conservative traditional values in general um, that are being left behind by Wall Street. And it, like we're here to fill that gap. Uh, that needs to change. And so there's a huge opportunity. There's an enormous amount of product that needs to be created, and we're honestly trying to keep up uh, with what God is doing. Um, we've been, been among the fastest-growing RAs in the nation the past few years, and uh, that growth is testament to just the huge market and um, really what God is doing in the hearts and minds of His people. Just a couple minutes left here. I mentioned your ticker symbols earlier. I, I have to ask you, uh, you, you have some of the best ticker symbols around. I mean, <laughs> Bible, bless, WWJD, so what would Jesus do? You have risen, right. uh, glory, fever. How, how do you come up with these? <laughs> a lot of creative sessions with uh, boxes of donuts and coffee. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. And uh, seeing WWJD strewn across the New York trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange, you know, it was a pretty cool sight. <laughs> All right. And before I let you go, as I understand it, Inspire uh, donates 50% or more of the profits generated for management fees to support ministry projects around the globe. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? What it would have been some of the projects? Yeah, absolutely. So we have uh, just finished up a, a major project of the Village Transformation in Guatemala. Uh, it's been a, about a two-and-a-half-year project where we've um, built out a school, medical clinic, built a church, have provided emergency food uh, distributions during COVID, all sorts of things. It's really changed the lives of these 900 souls who live in this high mountain village out in Guatemala. Uh, we've built water wells in Nepal. We've done other things. We give to pro-life causes. Um, really, we want to be an inspiring company. So um, when people invest with us, uh, they know that, you know, at wherever you go, you're going to pay fees, whether, you know, if you're at Vanguard or here or there or wherever at a lot of fees, little fees, doesn't matter. Uh, but what we're doing is when you invest with us, um, some of those fees are getting into the mission field. You know, we don't have a big high rise on Wall Street. We're in Boise, Idaho, for heaven's sake. Right. So uh, we just run a company a little differently to leave margin uh, to do some good work out there. No, I like that. You know, you know, that's tangible, right? And I think there is a lot of debate still around how impactful ESG investing really is. But what I like here is you're actually taking management fees and trying to make a difference. Not everyone's doing that, which I think is a differentiator. Uh, Robert, we'll have to leave it there. Congratulations on all the success. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. That was Robert Netsley, founder and CEO of Inspire Investing. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. 
Next week, I'll be joined by Armando Senra, head of iShares Americas. He's going to offer an ETF State of the Union, which I like to do once or twice a year. And then David Dzikanski, portfolio manager at Toroso Investments, is going to spotlight the SoFi ETF lineup. Until then, have a great week, everyone.